0: My name is Peter Lipson, and I am broadcasting to you this morning from snowy Michigan. All links mentioned in this podcast will be found at the forum at whitecodeunderground.com slash forum. Today's topic will include the following. One, what is an internist, or at least a little about it. Two, how to help physicians remain confident without feeling they're gods and three, some personal anecdotes regarding the loss of the sense of omnipotence and power in a physician. Good morning, and welcome to the second podcast from the White Coat Underground. Our guest this morning is once again me. Due to circumstances beyond my control, things have been somewhat chaotic, and getting another guest lined up has been somewhat difficult and more I will tell you about this later. Currently, it is 7.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. and here in my part of the U.S. the snow is falling once again. It hasn't been shoveled from the last time and it is quite beautiful out, especially when viewed from the comfort of the downstairs office. Given the hour, you may hear occasional slurping sounds during this broadcast, which is me enjoying my coffee. Before we get into actual medical issues, I'd like to just say something in praise of coffee. I love coffee, and as a physician, I can't find a lot wrong with the stuff. Remembering, please, that any medical advice uh, you may interpret as having been given from this podcast is not meant for you. You probably have a doctor, and if you don't, you need one so do not take things i say as medical advice directed at you dear listener that being said we've really had a hard time finding anything particularly wrong with coffee outside of certain heart conditions and other uh, certain medical conditions coffee's a fine drink now if i had my way every morning i would grind up some major dickinson's blends from pete's coffee but I don't live on the West Coast anymore, so I am currently drinking something from one of my local coffee shops, which isn't too bad. Now, just to remind you, I am an internist. That means I specialize in internal medicine. I will give you some links at our forum that explain exactly what that is. The web address is whitecoatunderground.com forum, and you will see a podcast discussion thread there. You will find my primary writing at scienceblogs.com slash denialism, D-E-N-I-A-L-I-S-M, and at sciencebasedmedicine.com. Okay, I've had a series of posts lately describing exactly what an internist is, and that's because I find that people outside the medical field aren't too familiar with it. An internist is a specialist in internal medicine which means that we take care of adults health and disease that includes prevention and treatment of all sorts of common diseases such as hypertension diabetes coronary artery disease and these diseases are so common in this part of the country that we sometimes resort to calling it the usual when you combine hypertension diabetes Uh, and uh, high cholesterol, you end up with a ticking time bomb. Thankfully, we do have ways of diffusing this bomb, and I am the bomb squad. To stretch the metaphor even further, if I'm the bomb squad, tobacco smoke is the accelerant. Now, we've made some fantastic advances over the last couple of decades in the treatment of these usual and common diseases which kill most of us. It gives me not a small amount of frustration and an occasional forehead banging into my desk when I hear some of the so-called alternative medicine folks blaming modern medical care for the deaths of millions. In fact, a uh, common statistics they like to quote, which is cherry-picked from a landmark institute of medicine study, is that Doctors, or modern medicine, are the third leading cause of death in the U.S. In fact, uh, medicine, medical errors, and other medical interventions do sometimes cause death. And this is significant. And in our last podcast, we did talk a bit about medical errors. And there is a follow-up post on the Denialism blog about this. However, that's only half the picture. The Institute of Medicine's landmark study did find that's somewhere between 44,000 and 98,000 deaths in the US every year may be due to medical errors of one sort or another. This is obviously unacceptable although as we've talked about in the past a certain baseline level of medical errors is unavoidable when we strive to save people's lives that number should be reduced as much as possible but let's compare the numbers here uh, according to the literature in the year 2000 alone advances in the treatment of just one disease, coronary artery disease, reduced the numbers of number of deaths by over three hundred and forty thousand. That is three hundred and forty thousand lives in two thousand were saved by the application of modern science based medicine. So along the way, if we're to believe the Institute of Medicine's data, we created errors that may have done in some of the people we were trying to save. Uh, It may be somewhat cold comfort to the people who are uh, dead and to their relatives that we were trying to do good when we were helping them. However, let us also remember that many of the people who may have been injured by medical errors were not fated to remain with us in any case, uh, remembering that the most dangerous interventions are Implemented on the sickest of us. The most heroic measures are taking on the people who need heroic measures. So even if we are to take these error statistics at face value, and it seems reasonable, uh, we are saving in order of magnitude more of people than we are harming with modern medicine. And that just makes sense. If we are going to give people treatments that are active rather than simply placebo treatments, people are going to suffer both the positive effects and adverse effects of these treatments. That is an inevitability. This is why when we are going to do a large procedure on someone, we ask for their explicit informed consent, which includes the physician listing a series of complications that, however rare, may occur. Now, sometimes we as physicians screw this one up. I got to tell you, this is a thing that really gets me. Sometimes we go in there and we give a litany of all the horrible things that can happen and we forget to tell them what the good possible outcome is. For example, if somebody comes into the emergency department and they're having a heart attack, they need treatment right away. Time is life when you're having a heart attack. And there are two possible interventions for a heart attack. One is to instill clot-busting medications through a vein, and the other is to perform a percutaneous intervention or a cardiac cath that can often result in an angioplasty or a stent placement now both of these are effective and the data is somewhat mixed as to which has uh, what kind of outcomes in the long run but in general the standard of care is that a coronary intervention like an angioplasty should be done if technically feasible now in an emergency situation, especially if someone's unable to communicate for themselves, consent can be assumed. It can be assumed that the patient has given consent to have their life saved, as long as you don't abuse that consent by, say, performing odd experiments on them. That may sound somewhat horrific, but uh, the past has shown us that when a patient is in a position of complete powerlessness, that kind of thing theoretically could happen. It is an area of active uh, ethical inquiry as to what emergency treatments can be tried on patients and in what way to do it so that it is ethically permissible. But as interesting as that topic is, that's not the topic of today's podcast. Let's go back to a situation where somebody arrives into the emergency department clutching their chest with horrible pain and a sense of all-pervading doom with the strong thought in their head that they are going to die. This is a typical presentation for a heart attack, and that sensation of, I'm about to die, is often correct. In this type of situation, a small amount of medical paternalism is necessary in order to save a patient's life. The topic of paternalism is addressed further in uh, a few posts over at denialism, but paternalistic persuasion can be a very important tool in saving someone's life, especially in an emergency situation. And this is where we sometimes make a little mistake. When somebody feels like they're about to die and we walk up to them and read them a list of possible complications of the life-saving procedure, we can sometimes give them the incorrect perception that the procedure is more dangerous than to just let nature take its course. This is not the case. In the setting of a heart attack, letting nature take its course means fairly swift death or, if one is somewhat less fortunate, becoming a cardiac cripple and then dying just a little bit later. Now the same thing is true for getting informed consent for any procedure, but sticking with this here, uh, cardiac catheterization is a complex procedure and its risks are many. You can have bleeding, especially at the site of the puncture for the catheter, you can have heart attack, you can dissect a coronary artery, you can cause death. But this is a death far less certain than the death that you would find if you were not to undergo the procedure and that's where we sometimes mess this up a little bit as physicians. Now this brings on another topic. If you are, say, a cardiologist and you walk up to someone and tell them, quite truthfully, I have the power in my hands to save your life, to grab you from the clutches of death and set you on your feet again in a few hours, and you can go about your life almost as if nothing had ever happened. Now, this is, of course, an oversimplification, but one thing that can happen here is the physician can begin to have a sense of omnipotence, control over life and death. And, of course, the physician does, to some extent, have some control over life and death. But a greater issue here is how does that affect the physician, and then eventually how does that affect the patient? Now, I think most of us have met doctors who certainly think that they're God, and this may arise partly out of... This sense that they really can control life and death, but it may also rise out of a sense that if they didn't feel that confident, they would be unable to perform their duties out of trembling fear that they will kill someone every time they walk near them. In speaking to a prominent psychiatrist recently, uh, I found that in dealing with physicians uh, several years out from their training who were feeling a sense of burnout, that was often a cause of some of that sense was that loss of that sense of omnipotence, finally realizing that, that they are, in fact, not a deity. Now, in training young physicians, we like to inculcate them with a sense, certainly, of power in that they can affect the lives of their patients, but we don't want them to necessarily feel that they are completely omnipotent for Obvious reasons. At the same time, we can't allow them to be paralyzed by fear. Uh, By way of a small anecdote, a few years back when I was leading a teaching service at a large urban hospital, we admitted an elderly man with a bad case of gout. He was in excruciating pain and was having difficulty walking. Now, as you may or may not know, gout is not generally considered a life threatening illness. So The young physicians and medical students on the team may often view this as a rather easy admission. Admit the man, make him feel more comfortable, help him with his gout, send him back home to his family. And my team proceeded to do just that. They admitted the patient, got him comfortable, his foot was feeling much better, and then he died. This was a very difficult lesson for my junior medical student. At the time, she was on her first rotation on internal medicine, where you often deal with the sickest of the sick people. And the death surprised her. She looked at me and said, but he just came in with gout. How could we have killed him? And I reminded her that we did not, in fact, kill the patient and that the patient didn't just have gout. The patient had a history of diabetes, coronary artery disease, congestive heart failure, and a number of other problems that add up to what you might call the usual plus. He was a very elderly man, and he had a number of very serious medical problems, and happened to have gout. And while I didn't want her to take away from the lesson that no matter what you do, your patient is going to die, she and me and the rest of the team did need to learn that despite the fact that someone might not seem particularly ill when you look at the whole patient there's often a different picture and people do in fact die even when we do our best to help them now while this sense of omnipotence is sometimes helpful and sometimes harmful there are ways to lose the inappropriate sense of omnipotence and to regain a certain sense of control over a situation both as a physician and as a patient, and as a family member of a patient. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, patients who are in the hospital need an advocate, and that's usually a family member. This advocacy can be anything from making sure that the patient isn't lonely to confronting nursing staff and physicians if you feel things are not going as they should. Now, by way of a personal anecdote, which... I'll call doctors behaving badly, the doctor in this case being myself, Uh, my father-in-law is currently in the hospital. He has a bad case of the usual. In this case, he has a spine problem, but it is complicated by the fact that he has diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, and a lot of the illnesses that affect our population. When it comes to his medical care, he's fortunate to have physicians in the family who can help guide him through the medical system, and in this case, uh, I arranged to have him admitted to the hospital and to have a good set of doctors take care of him when this medical problem came to a head recently. Now, his recovery is going very slowly because of his many medical problems. If it were just the spine problem, he would probably do fine, but it's not just the spine problem. He has a lot of other stuff going on, so we are spending a lot of time in the hospital with him trying to make sure he gets the care he needs. In other words, we are being vigorous advocates for his care. Sometimes this can become a little bit too vigorous, as when... The other night, I called the floor that he's on to get an update about him. Uh, I called four times and was disconnected from the nurse each time and became, shall we say, a little bit frustrated. I uh, am around the hospital quite a bit and know most of the nurses and most of them know me. And they know me as somebody who returns my calls promptly and who is polite and who takes good care of his patients. But... I suppose I'm not always as polite as I need to be, and in this case, when I finally did get a hold of the nurse, I was not at first short, but became so rapidly. You see, the nurses who work the nights on the weekends are often not the same nurses that we work with every day, and sometimes they don't know those of us who are at the hospital daily. This seems to be one of those cases. I identified myself and asked for an update on the condition of the patient and was interrogated by the nurse as to why I was calling, who I was, etc. Now, I've actually never experienced this before, either calling on one of my own patients or one of my own family members, and combine that with the frustration of not having been able to get through to her a number of times, I pretty much lost it. I put on my arrogance hat and informed her that my temper was going to be short, as she had failed to pick up her calls several times, and that I was calling for an update on a patient, and that I would require the information immediately, and that she should not be the one asking the questions, but I should be. Now, the manner in which this soliloquy was delivered was perhaps not all that productive, but My father-in-law had had some very negative experiences with the nighttime staff and I did want them to know I was looking over their shoulder. I have to say though that after my little rage attack, the nurse gave me a very thorough update uh, about the care of my father-in-law and the next morning I apologized to the nursing staff for my previous night's behavior. Now, one of the questions here is, despite the fact that I used my position of power in a rather forceful manner, was it or was it not inappropriate? As a family member, I have to say that it was, of course, not inappropriate at all. I was doing my best to advocate for my family member. But as a physician, did I abuse my position of power by lashing out at this particular nurse? And I'd have to say the answer is yes and no, with a slightly larger emphasis on the yes. The reason I say no is because it did require me to use that position of power to assure that my father-in-law had the care he needed. In fact, there were a few things that were not going right that evening that I was able to identify from my conversation and that I was able to correct. However, at the same time, I probably caused that nurse to feel maybe not an exactly equal partner in the care team for the patient. And as we talked about last time, uh, there is at least some anecdotal evidence that if nurses feel scared of, belittled by, diminished by physicians, they may be less likely to call them to ask for help and to inform them of problems. Now, I'm certainly not going to apologize to myself or to anyone else for having advocated for my family member, but I did apologize for the fact that I was rather short with the nurse and uh, I think we did improve his overall care. But this is a very fine line to tread as a family member of a patient. How forcefully do you need to advocate for your family member to ensure that they get the care they need without alienating the staff who's responsible for the minute-to-minute care of your family member? No one can really answer that question. It's something you just have to feel your way through. Unfortunately, you have to feel your way through it at a time of incredible stress. But I will tell you that we did find a more productive way to channel my expertise and my energies and it's something that I would recommend and that I have recommended to all families. One of the problems my father-in-law has been dealing with is becoming frightened and delirious in the hospital and one of the reasons for this is that he is from his spinal injury very weak and can't even use the nurse call button. We arranged for a sitter to be there with him at night uh, as we don't have enough people to cover 24 hours a day with him, but mornings and evenings are especially difficult. So over dinner last night I sat down with the family. I gave them a summary of what was going on with him, and I told them that we needed to draw up a schedule of people to sit with him during these crucial periods to help keep him calm and to help keep him feeling safe. Also, we can be there to help encourage him to do the things he needs to do to improve his strength and to get better. We actually drew up a physical schedule of who was going to be at the hospital when and of what tasks we should try to accomplish when we're at the hospital. This was done in a way to minimize undue stress on any one caregiver and to make sure that my father-in-law had a familiar face around. How well this will work, time will only tell. But this is part of advocating for a patient. So when, as either a physician or a family member, your sense of omnipotence is cracked, one way to regain a more appropriate sense of power over situation is to find a problem that one can address and address it in a productive way. And I think we'll leave it at that today. So feel free to pop over to the forum to discuss today or previous podcasts at whitecodeunderground.com forum, and to find any links mentioned during the podcast. Also, please feel free to visit us at scienceblogs.com denialism. That is all, and I will talk to you next time.